Welcome one and all. Grab a seat by the bonfire, the podcast where the love for the fire blazes bright and conversations ignite. This is our first episode since rebranding. We, we hope that you like the new look. Pretty much nothing else will change except we plan on continually trying to get better for you as we've been doing since, since our inception. So without further ado, the fire season is underway. DJ, I, I believe you were able to watch, right? Indeed, I was. Uh, Alex, I know you were able to get to uh, Philadelphia. I wasn't able to make it to Philadelphia. You said I was in Philadelphia. I was actually in Chester. Oh, so you never actually entered the Philadelphia city limits. You just saw. Oh, I did actually. I did the day before the game. The day before the game, I did to do some media stuff in the city. But on the actual day of the game, I was in Chester. Under the bridge, as uh, as you titled your your match recap, it was cool. Really, did you did you enjoy any cheesesteaks? I did very good cheesesteak. Did you get a chance to boo with Santa Claus? I, I did not. I just watched a lot of booing of a part time referee. <laughs> well, fair enough. And we're going to get into all of that pretty soon. First thing, news: we don't actually have the full information yet. We're expecting to have it sometime this week. It's more or less confirmed at this point, and uh, Minute Red 97 sources have confirmed to us that there will be MLS team participation in the Open Cup. Uh, we can confirm that it will be eight MLS teams. Um, I do not have the full details about which teams that will be. Um, Alex, do you have any more inside information that, that I do not about that? No. Last I heard, it sounds like it's going to be eight it's just that they haven't completely agreed upon how those eight are going to be determined. That's what I've heard as well. Um, I, I've heard there's been discussion about the formats and stuff like that. I also have heard that from the way that the U.S. Soccer Federation is treating it, uh, essentially the 2024 is a difficult year for scheduling because of uh, Copa America being taking place in the middle of the MLS season. Uh 2025, the Club World Cup is coming to the United States. So that's going to be another major tournament happening during the MLS season. And then 2026 is the World Cup, which Don Garber has confirmed that the league will be taking a break for. And so my understanding is that U.S. soccer, the Federation's goal is to just keep the cup alive and in the best shape that it can between now and 2026 and really be ready to run in 2027 with a format that should hopefully work long-term. I've also been told by a U.S. Soccer Federation source they believe they found a new economic model that they think for the first time in history will mean that no team participating in the Cup will ever lose money whether or not they're having games home or away, which that would be the first time in history that's happened. Um, And they've worked a long time trying to find an economic model that works for all parties. So we should get some details about part of that part of that. Um, my understanding is the first thing is going to be just an announcement about MLS team participation, and we should know what teams at that point, or at least what the format is for deciding those teams. Um, that will be for 2024 only, and then it's going to be probably some updates in 2025 and 2026 before hopefully 2027 we get a, a format that everyone can sort of like agree on and stick with for for the long haul. So, um, roster updates, uh, Alex, do you want to run into, uh, oh, and he, by the way, you can't see this because you don't get the video. He was like literally doing like tapping his fingers thing. So, uh, everyone buckle down. This is, this is my favorite thing. And honestly, people find this very boring, but I love roster rules, breaking them down. What's funny is he, we have the three people in the entire like world 
that enjoy MLS roster rules and regulations. And like that are fire. Like we are like, we are the fire MLS roster nerds on this podcast right now. So buckle in. We'll try to make it tolerable. Uh, if not, maybe we'll put it something in the show notes about like what period you can skip forward to if you really don't want to hear it. If you don't want to hear it, too bad. I'll, I'll give you an overview in the quickest way possible about the stuff that happened this week because there was a lot of changes that happened in the last minute right before. And if you want more details on this article on the on the website, How Chicago Fire Achieved Roster Compliance, the deadline was Friday, the day before the game, and they got compliance officially I believe it was completed on Wednesday, but really Thursday is when we found out roster compliance has been accomplished. Now, how did they do that? The Chicago Fire were right up against the salary cap. There were some difficulties here. One, their roster was technically over the limit. Two, they had 21 players. So, so just just to five. define over the limit, you mean over the cap limit, right? In terms of the so over the cap limit, which I believe is like 5.5 million, roughly. Not including designated players, not including homegrowns, not including any other off-budget players. That's the salary cap. And the fire were really, really close to that. If they weren't over it, they were really, really close. Right? And then with the senior roster, which is the bulk of the first team, you're only allowed to have 20 players. The fire had 21. They couldn't get rid of Arno Suke. Um, no matter how hard they tried. There were rumors about Gaston Jimenez. He stayed. Carlos Teran had rumors. He got injured. So it looked like the fire were in an impossible situation with 21 players. It would mean Kellen Acosta wouldn't be able to be registered. It was kind of a problem. What did they do? There were two big changes that happened before the roster compliance to address the salary cap issue and the roster size issue. Number one, Spencer Ritchie. They bought his contract down from a senior contract to a supplemental roster contract, meaning that essentially, in simple terms, he moves from the first team to the reserve roster, essentially. It used to be called the reserve roster. Now it's the supplemental roster. They use and, a and little just bit to be clear, the first team players are routinely on the supplemental roster. Like Brian Gutierrez, yeah. um, in recent, uh, up until this season, was on the supplemental roster. even the and Chris Brady, even though they were both like frequent starters over the past season. Mm-hmm. Anana, so, Dean, and Amsberg all have been too. Yeah, so Jonathan Dean was not on the supplemental roster last season, but this season they actually bought him down to the supplemental roster from the senior roster. And that's exactly what they did with Richie as well, because while they were on the senior roster, their salaries were close enough to the minimum uh, that they were able to use general allocation money to buy them down and open up slots on the senior roster, which gives the fire a lot more flexibility in the market. So that was a really important transaction to bring the roster size of the senior roster from 21 down to 20. Now, they were still having some issues with the salary cap. They needed some more general allocation money. How did this come into play? Give designated player tag to Gaston Jimenez. Now, Gaston Jimenez was a designated player from 2020 until 2022, end of 2022 season. The beginning of last season, they removed the DP tag, gave him a new contract. He was a TAM player. Now he's a DP again. So just wanted to define the TAM player for those that are not MLS sickos out there. It's players that are making under about 1.8 million, I guess, this year is is the threshold, which is a lot higher than it used to be, but right? No, so... Basically, Gaston Jimenez is a max TAM player, which means that 
he's right up at the limit of how much a how much a tam player can be without being a designated player and then with this new move where he's going to be a designated player this means that that tam salary is not going to count toward the salary cap um he's going to be a designated player meaning that his and, salary hits at about 684,000 rather than about 1.8 right. million right but yes but he's on the same contract. The contract hasn't changed. He's not getting a pay raise. He's not getting like a DP typical contract. He's on the same exact TAM salary that he was on last season. It's just that he has an extra tag on it. Basically, the reason this happened is it frees up about a million dollars of cap space. It goes from 1.6 million cap hit to... Oh, sorry. One, it frees up a million dollars of general allocation money. Excuse me. And that basically made the fire roster compliant and gives more flexibility for the summer. Now, you may be wondering, but two things. One, Gastoni Menes filling a designated player slot gives less flexibility because it fills up a DP slot. It means there's no longer an open DP slot. That's not 100% true. Yes, there's no DP slot open, but the fire can use general allocation money to buy him back down to a TAM player so he wouldn't be a DP anymore. And they do have enough allocation money in the bank to do that. Second thing, with the under-22 initiative slots, it's been reported that if you have three designated players who are over the age of 24, I believe, no young designated players, then you need to have only one under-22 initiative slot. But if you have a YDP, you would have three. Which again, but that is we, YDP just However, to, just to define it, YDP just to define it as a young designated like the young designated player. We're getting yeah. pretty far into the weeds with this. I, I mentioned that I said a designated player under the age of twenty four. Um, and Gaston Jimenez is not a young designated player. However, because his salary is under the max tam threshold, the under twenty two initiative slots stay open. So any player making under the TAM max where they could be do- bought down. So they're essentially, they could be a DP. They don't have to be a DP. That's an optional tag by the team. Uh, that means that the team has all three U22 slots available. Yes. And from what I've been told, this is not a very common move in MLS. And we know this. Giving a DP tag to a player just to help the roster compliance is a really rare thing in MLS. From what I've been told, the Chicago Fire are considered one of the best teams in the league when it comes to manipulating roster rules. Not in a, not in a nefarious way, but in a way to make themselves compliant and get the best possible roster on the field, for this season at least. Um, a few other changes happened that I don't think we need to go into because we're a bit in the weeds here with these technicalities that if you are listening to this, God bless you. Um, but green cards going to give the fire more flexibility. Rafael Shihos and Federico Navarro are expected to get that process moving soon, so that'll open up two international slots. And then Omari Glasgow, not able to sign right now because of the international status, but Lawrence Wooten will sign a contract. He's expected to sign a contract soon. That would make him a member of the fire's first team, though he will go on loan to a USL team, which I don't think it's officially decided what team it's going to be. But I've heard a couple teams mentioned, including Indy 11, which I think would be an interesting one. So that's that's what's frequently called uh, roster spot 31, 
right, DJ? You were mentioning this earlier when we were talking about it. Yes, that that would be the one that uh, for the last few years, Alan Rodriguez has been in because the fire probably didn't want to pay Alan Rodriguez as a whole salary because of that stuff. Well, they were paying it, but still. So what can you explain what the benefit is of the roster spot 31 and what the limitations are? So me or Alex. Either I was asking you, DJ, but DJ loves thirty-one. So DJ, go for it. I listen. I have a picture of Bashi and Schweinsteiger. I have to love thirty-one. <laughs> I have a picture of Bashi that Bashi asked for. I can't not love it. Fair enough. Anyway, <laughs> um, now thirty-one basically is just a player is a part of the roster. He's paid by the club, but he is not does not count towards the roster's thirty cap. I think actually a couple teams have X. I think, how am I supposed to put this? I've seen a few teams. I think Atlanta was the one where they have several players in the slot 31. So it's just kind of like, these are guys that are out on loan. If I remember correctly. Yeah. They, they, they're technically not eligible to play for their MLS team, even though they're under contract to the MLS team. It's a slot designed for a player that will be loaned out to play elsewhere. Um, it's, Which Wooten it's will be the, loaned out to USL. Right, exactly. So it's, it's one of the most bizarre uh, and frustrating in some ways rules for, for MLS fans to deal with, um, but it's the world that we live in. Um, last quick hit before we actually get into the the fire segment and, and like things that are happening on the pitch, both past and future. Uh, the LA Galaxy played uh, Inter-Miami uh Miami traveled. Uh, they they hosted the uh, Real Salt Lake in their opening match midweek. Traveled to LA for a match on Sunday. It was the kind of like marquee match. It's like the literally Sunday night football if you want to like call soccer football. And um, replacement refs, which we'll discuss early, like a little bit later in the podcast, were generally good earlier in the week. That match, there were some issues. Um, there was a second yellow card issued to. Uh, an LA Galaxy player and that and when Delgado was issued the second yellow that of course meant that the Galaxy were down a man towards the end of the match leading 1-0 and of course four minutes later as you could expect Inter-Miami score Um, subsequent review of the play and we've posted a video of this um, on, on socials. It's very clear. There is no contact between Sergio Busquets, the Miami player that quote unquote earned the yellow card and um, the, and the galaxy player. So questionable call Uh, realistically, I don't know how you guys feel about it. Like I, it, it does, it's not a good look for the league, but I like Sergio Busquets has been selling calls like that his entire career it's like one of the things that he does particularly well yeah i mean that was a bad call i don't think people expected replacement refs to be perfect i mean we'll talk more about the fire union game later but just as an example the referee of the fire union game had six professional games the center referee and five of the six were mls next pro that's the kind of level of ref we're talking about here it's not ideal Sometimes it's going to be fine. Like in the fire game, I thought the ref was great. In the Miami games, that both of them so far, they've clearly been inexperienced. Their positioning has been bad. Some of their decision-making, their capability of the VAR is non-existent. It's not their fault. It's not their fault the position they've been put in here. 
but it is, I am hopeful that the situation will get sorted out soon. Yeah, the, uh, by the way, the referee in question, uh, the head referee, Gabriel Chiampi, uh, if you Google his name, it turns out he's actually a musical composer uh, that is his normal day job. Um, there's a video, like there's a photo of him presenting a CD to the Pope, and he's kind of moonlighting as a referee, although he has refereed games as far as MLS Next Pro. So uh, interesting times. But yeah, like overall, I think the quality of the referees have been have been decent. Uh, we've mentioned the fire game uh, in passing, but here we are talking about it. Like, let's let's bring it up. So, top line: if the Fire opened their season in Chester, Pennsylvania, outside of Philadelphia, technically closer to Delaware than it is Philadelphia, uh, and managed a two-two draw. Um, it was the the debut for team record signing Google Kuipers. Uh, Brian Gutierrez opened the team scoring, uh, opened the scoring in that match. Um, the team conceded what ended up like 1-1. The team was ahead late off of Fabian Herber's goal that was kind of a team effort uh, before conceding in stoppage time to finish the game 2-2. DJ, what were your thoughts uh, watching the game initially? Let's be perfectly honest. That was a good game. The fact that the fire walked away with a point is damn good. For those uh, listening, Alan... Could not make it tonight. However, he did leave some notes for us. Alan said, like we mentioned, a draw at Subaru would be a good takeaway. And based on what I, what Alan heard and what I saw, things could be cooking on the lakefront. Apart from the Gutman injury, which we're all behind you, Andrew. And yeah, that's that's honestly it. I mean, I can't get mad at the draw. I said this on Twitter, but. Philadelphia literally has been one of the best teams at home over the last few years. Yeah, it's unfortunate that we drew a game that we were winning. But if you're upset that we drew a game against Philadelphia in their own backyard, where literally we were winning most of the match, I know where you're coming from, but this is a good result no matter what. A location where they've only lost four games uh, since 2022 across all competitions. I think in so, total they've lost eight since 2020. Now that I think about it. Yeah. And, and the team that has the most points in the league since 2020. So Alex, you were there, you were covering the match from the press box. Um, what were your impressions? I mean, I'll just start it off by giving all compliments to Subaru park to Philadelphia. I've been to now more than a third of the stadiums in the league. And for me, it's right up there in terms of atmosphere, in terms of setting. So Shout out to Philadelphia. If, if any Fire fans listening to this are planning road trips, my favorites so far have been Philadelphia and Montreal. So those are the two I can recommend right now. Uh, Montreal later this year as well as an option in September. But in terms of the game itself, I thought it was a thriller, thrilling, thrilling game for the Fire. I think if you told me before the game that the Fire were going to come away with a point, I think Fire fans would have to be very, very happy with that. Philadelphia, for most of the game... Just felt like they were going to score. First half was pretty stale until Guti's banger. Second half, from the moment the second half kicked off until the moment the final whistle blew, every single second of the game felt like the Union were about to score. And four times they put the ball in the back of the net. Two of them didn't count. They were clearly offside. But over and over and over again, Philadelphia Jim Curtin had the exact same game plan. Over 
and over and over again, build up through the middle, hit it out wide to Quinn Sullivan or Nathaniel Harriel, whip the ball in across the penal- across the six-yard box, and hope Daniel Gazdog or Michael Ua is going to be there. Four times that worked. Four times they put the ball in the back of the net. And like I said, two times VAR correctly intervened. But it was definitely interesting to see a Groundhog Day-esque situation where over and over and over again, I'm sitting here, I'm watching down the right side of the field, down the right wing. Philadelphia's attacking down the right wing, hitting it across, across the box. And time and time again, it keeps working over and over and over again. I think the Fire are a bit fortunate to come away with the point. At the same time, great mentality, great mental fortitude to come away with a draw to score two goals in this environment, which was extremely, extremely hostile for the Fire. I mean, if you want an idea of Philadelphia, of the fans, of the setting. Before the game even started, I was in the parking lot. I was trying to take a photo outside the stadium with the, our new men in red scarves, uh, which we produced earlier this year. And I held up the scarf. Before I could even finish ho- unraveling the scarf, behind me, a Philadelphia man with his young child who looked about to be five years old, this man looks up, shouts an expletive, and gives me the middle finger. Welcome to Philadelphia. Um, that is and, classic uh, Philadelphia sports behavior. Uh, right. So, like, it is, <laughs> like the, the same team that booed Santa Claus is still the same team that is going to do that to opposing people, whether they're media. I mean, obviously, there was no easy way for them to know that you were media at that stage or not. Um, so you mentioned attacking up the right side. Um, that actually brings up an in- interesting point. Um we mentioned that we didn't actually get into details about it. Uh, Andrew Gutman making his first team debut for the Chicago fire um, after having been an Academy homegrown product and not signing a, a deal with the team um, in something that I think a lot of fire fans uh, know some details about. Um, and Gutman has been very generous about saying that it has always been his, his team two minutes in um, he goes down with a, a non-contact injury, to be clear, there's not a union player anywhere near him. It, it There was nothing nefarious in it. It's just, it, it's an injury we don't know the the details of or the extent of. And uh, like, I at least am not going to speculate on it. I think we're going to get more details this week on exactly what the injury is and what the prognosis is for him going forward. But that meant that just two minutes into the first match of the season, Frank Klopas had to go to his bench and bring on Chase Gasper, um, who was brought on kind of to be the the backup. I mean, realistically, I think that we expected and hoped that Gutman would be starting 34 games for the fire and going, or like the bulk of the minutes, I mean, would be going to, to Gutman. Um, unfortunately, that wasn't able to be the case. I mean, and it's sad, not just because of the whole story about him coming back to Chicago, which I think most people, myself, was very, very excited about. But also, in those first 90 seconds he was on the field, he was already looking good. Like, he took on a defender. Like, he was looking promising in the opening seconds of the game. Like, the, his first touches, I was like, all right, this is not Miguel Angel Navarro anymore. This is Andrew Gutman. This is a big upgrade. And then before we knew it, he's sitting on the floor, looks to be in a lot of pain. He's helped off the field. Now, he does walk off on his own, which is promising, I guess. And Chase Gasper comes on. Uh, Chase Gasper, by the way, played four games in MLS last season. This is not someone who is expecting to play a lot. This is someone who's had a very, very rough go of things the last four years. 
He had a national team call-up in 2020, made his debut against Costa Rica, and since then his career has been difficult for a multitude of reasons on and off the field. Injuries. And so he was, though, at one point considered a top a top level prospect in this league coming out of the Super Right. Right. I'm saying in 2019 season, he was excellent. He was one of the better left backs in MLS that season, in his debut season with Minnesota. And then just for a variety of reasons, the last four years have been pretty unfortunate for him. And this year, he has a big opportunity to come into the game against Philadelphia. Now, Philadelphia, Jim Curtin sees this. And they decide, right wing, there we go. Quinn Sullivan, who was in that position on the right side of their diamond, played awesome. He played great. He was Philadelphia's most dangerous player, in my opinion, from my vantage point. And he was making life very difficult for Chase Gasper, who I don't think expected to see the field, let alone see 73 minutes of action. And uh, but I think he did fine. He made some Before, by the way, being but relieved by uh, Jonathan Dean, um, which yes. playing a kind of against his natural side. Which, if Andrew Gubin is out for an extended time, it will be interesting to see who takes that spot. Will it be Gutman? Will it be not Gutman? Will it be Gasper? Excuse me, or will it be Jonathan Dean? Or could it even be Arno Suke, who played left back one time in preseason, was expected to no longer be with the team, and now suddenly is relevant again because a fullback is injured and now there are only four fit fullbacks on the roster. So we'll see what happens there. And for what it's worth that for what it's worth, like the Philadelphia union traditionally, like it has been their left side. That is the the side that overwhelms teams on the attack. Um, And then you like, including like a number of talents like this year, it looks like Jack McGlynn is going to be given more or less the keys to the car there. Um, A a prospect. I think that he was, he was born within a couple of months of uh, Brian Gutierrez. And essentially same level prospect in the USMNT setup. I mean, like a, a top tier prospect. Uh, widely expected to be in. Yeah. No, I'd, I'd say Guti's a tier above McGlynn. I think I think for me, long-term McGlynn is a, is a more one-dimensional player. Um, but I think we're getting into the weeds a bit here. Um, uh, so I, either way, both, uh, both would be expected to be <laughs> available for the Olympics if they're released. Um, yeah. And then a ceiling from there. The most important thing for me was that upon Gutman coming out of the game and Gasper going in, Curtin heavily, heavily emphasized Quinn Sullivan attacking down the right wing, the fires left. And Gasper, I think, played as well as he possibly could have. I think he was pretty good. He had a good game. But it was pretty clear for someone who wasn't expecting to play at all that the minutes were weighing on him. And you it saw was the rust as well. There were for every good decision, there was there was a time that it seemed like he was like out of place defensively. Um, the fire's back line, I think, on the whole, you know, did not look fantastic in the opening match of the season. Yeah, and it it, it didn't help that to be a Solquist, not ready to start a game yet. He wasn't in the squad. Um, that's the new signing at center back from Silkeborg. And then it didn't help Gasper that Sullivan was having one of the best games I've ever seen him play. And I've seen a lot of games from Quinn Sullivan. This is one of the best games I've seen him play. He was unlucky not to score. He had several shots that came really, really close. And he ended up getting the assist, I believe, on the first goal for Michael Ua. 
Yeah. Um, although overall, you know, it's kind of funny that we're, we, we've been talking about a lot of players. One player that we haven't mentioned except in passing, uh, we're sort of burying the lead here. Uh, Brian Gutierrez had one of his best matches of, of his life. Um, and, and that's, I think, saying something. Um, mm-hmm. Do you want to describe the, uh, the opening goal, Alex? Yeah, so I'll describe it from my vantage point. Um, setting the scene here a little bit. It's very cold, but Subaru Park is absolutely rocking. It's one of the loudest MLS stadiums ever seen. And then in about two seconds, it goes from roaring, shaking the stadium, to so quiet you could hear a pin drop. Brian Gutierrez picks up the ball off a, off a, off a touch from Fabian Herbers, and from outside the 18 takes a rip, a bullet, a, a, a rocket into the top left corner that debut goalkeeper Oliver Semley really had no chance of saving. The, the phrase that uh, Matt, Matt Doyle, writing for MLSsoccer.com, used was a thunder bastard. And uh, I, I just want to start using that more often in my life. That would be the correct term uh, if you're in England, yes. Um, it, was, it was an absolute rocket. You could make a case that Semley's positioning could have been better. It was his MLS debut. He wasn't expecting to start until two days before. So nonetheless, what a goal. Should be goal of the week. It's not going to be goal of the week because Carlos Hill is probably going to win goal of the week for a very similar goal that I guess was nicer because it was a left-footed shot. I don't know. But anyway, that's besides the point. Guti gives the fire the lead. I think Philly were just kind of in shock that that happened. They didn't really expect to go behind, considering the fire haven't beaten them there since 2013. But what a moment for Guti. For someone who... The big question with him is, can he get that finishing product? Can he get Could that he become goal product? dangerous? Because it seems like he shrunk the closer that he got to the goal last season. Because it seemed like every time he was bearing down on goal where he should have just shot, he would just look for a pass. And we talked, we spoke to a post game about it. We pretty much asked him straight up last season. We didn't see you shoot. You shot. Why? And he says, I saw the space. I thought, why not? And we need to, we need him to say, why not a little bit more this season? Because he's got that in his locker. He's shown it in practice. I've seen him do it in warmups. Yet in the games, this is the first time he's really just taken a rip, and it was a beautiful goal. Yeah, one hundred percent. Now, the biggest name that started this fire match, I think, the one that fire fans were most excited to see was Hugo Kuipers. Uh, his MLS debut, obviously, after coming over from Belgium. Um, DJ, did you like? What did you think of his performance in this match? I mean, I think he did okay. Considering the fact that he didn't get goals, he's still adjusting everything. Honestly, I think he did pretty much decent. You can't really ask him to be like Ronaldo, but for what he got, yeah. Yeah, and I think that one thing that I, I noticed is he was kind of getting in behind lines sometimes. He was making defenses think, and that sort of created space for others around him. Like, you can watch, like, if you if you watch the replay of, of Guti's goal, you can see Philadelphia's back line kind of like keeping an eye on, on Kuypers and they have to change their positioning to make sure that they're close enough to stop him if the ball gets to his feet. And with Guti's ability to like get the ball to places like that, that meant the defense had to think and it means that they couldn't like put men on one, like just on like one side of the pitch. 
because Kuipers was running on sort of like to the right side of the net um, in one of the half spaces while Guti was coming down the left. And that ability to have threats in more than one spot is something the fire really kind of like lacked last season and having them now, I think really did change the match. And I think it gave Guti that like a little bit of extra space, that like little extra half second to get the shot off that he needed. And that, that may have been one of the contributing factors in the goal. Yep. And then another player I really want to shout out because we mentioned Kuipers. I thought Kuipers was really good. He didn't score, but he was very effective in terms of making the attack more dangerous. Uh, Gaston Jimenez. Now, I've seen mixed talks about him on social media because a lot of people I saw on Twitter, actually Christian, who who wrote our player ratings, didn't appreciate his performance. Uh, Maybe it's a TV versus in-person thing. For me, he was one of the best players on the field for the fire. I thought Jimenez looked really, really solid, controlled the midfield, made the interventions he needed to make, and on the ball was good too, had really high passing accuracy, didn't give the ball away a lot. And I thought he really did actually play like a designated player in that game. Everyone's entitled to their opinion, but for me, Gaston was one of the best players on the field. So playing kind of like counter to Jose Martinez, uh, who is one of the best sixes in the league, um, it seemed like Gaston was getting back on defense more than what I've normally expected from him. And one of the things that allowed to happen was allowing Fabian Herbers to get to a further place, like go further up the pitch and get more advanced on the field, which really is not, I think what we've come to expect from Gaston. Um, We normally would think that like in a double pivot like that, like we would think of Gaston Jimenez being the guy that will contribute, like get the ball up the field, contribute more offensively and kind of like leave the defensive duties to someone else. But that's not what happened. And I think that that actually is probably one of the contributing factors ultimately to the fire's second goal because Fabi had gotten used to getting up the pitch. Um, and so Fabi scoring the second goal, at, like ostensibly from the defensive midfield position that he was playing in, I think is partly in credit to Gasson taking defensive duties seriously here. I agree. I agree. If we see if we see more of this Gaston Jimenez when he's next to Kellen Acosta, it's going to make both players a lot better. One hundred percent. And Kellen Acosta, by the way, did make his debut off the bench. Um, what did you guys think of his performance? I don't think. Uh, honestly, I don't think he played enough to be like, "Oh my god, this guy's amazing," or "Oh my god, it's a horrible signing." I think he was he was decent enough. I, I said this on Twitter. I think that he might be a little bit injured, and the fact that he hasn't really played in like three months or no two months his last game was mls cup because he didn't play in preseason at all he did watch part of it from the sidelines although we just assumed that it because it was kind of a blur that is still the greatest tweet the fire have ever made 100 percent. all right guys um before we move on uh any burning any burning desire to talk about anything else with this match i want to mention the rest real quick before you go into mauricio pineda yeah, I mean, look, I saw the fans constantly booing the referees. Local media, when I, I read around Philadelphia's vantage point of the of the of the game, a lot of emphasis was on the refereeing in a negative light. So For me, booing the referees, thought, but in writing after the fact is what you're saying, right? I thought, objectively speaking, most of the calls were right. The VAR calls 
were correct. They were clearly offside. I don't know what there is to complain about. Every single soccer game you watch, referees are going to make small mistakes here and there. Like, for instance, there were a couple of calls where I thought maybe a foul could have been called faster. Maybe the decision was a little bit slow. Um, there were actually some instances where the fire got a little bit lucky, where they, may, they maybe got away with something small, a little push here and there, possibly a gusto and Jimenez handball toward the end of the game. Little things like that. But I don't think all those things would normally be controversial. I think that there was right, just because, like early ball early ball on, ball. MLS refereeing has traditionally been a little bit, just like a little rough around the edges at the beginning of the season, as everyone's kind of getting back into the groove of things. And I think we maybe saw like a little bit more of that this season, right? Like where it's like the offsides flag comes up a little bit late um, in, in the match between FC Cincinnati and Toronto. Like the, one of the, like the head referee seemed to like have to stop and think about how to like draw the box thing for the VAR review um, stuff like that. But like, that's not like changing the outcome of the game or anything. No, I mean, look, like I said, normally referees make mistakes that nobody talks about. The only difference is that now people are talking about the tiny, tiny little things that nobody ever would otherwise care about because of the focus on the referees because of the lockout. Yeah, 100%. There's definitely more of an eye on refereeing um, because it's not the same referees that we've come to like know and, well, I'm not going to say love. Um, I said no and love in the post-game report, so you can say it. Um, Look. uh, No, I'm still still not going to say that. It's not a permission issue. Some of these refs, in some of these MLS games this week, never going to see the field in MLS again. They're going to still do their USL games, their NCAA games. Muhammad Hassan, the referee of the Fire Philly game, in a difficult environment, a difficult setting, a choppy game, he did a very good job, and I hope for his sake that he gets more opportunities in Major League Soccer individually to be a referee, because I think he did a very good job. So just to be clear, uh, currently a subject of a lawsuit, uh, <laughs> whether or not um, the PSRA um, has been guilty of, I guess, intimidation is the, the legal charge um, against the replacement referees because of their statements about the future career spot prospects of those that are currently refereeing these games. Um, so... DJ, anything else? Uh, the, you mentioned the captaincy issue. Uh, captain, yes. So Shakiri took over the captain's armband and is now the permanent captain. And when Shakiri was taken off for Acosta, the armband, instead of going to Shehos or Jimenez or even Acosta, went to Fabian Herberts, which very interesting. I we can't speculate too much on that because we don't know anything for sure. I think it's worth noting both Fabi and Shaq are out of contracts at the end of the year. That's all Fabi I, and Herbers, I'll say. Fabi and Herbers, by the way, is the by a not that significant amount because there's some homegrowns that are that have been on the team for a while. But he's the longest tenured first team member of the Chicago Fire organization. What's ironic is how long Herbers has been here was how long Kapelhoff was here too. It's been six years now, so but. Um, ironically, the person that's second longest is Pineda. Pineda also had a really good game, which I am very happy about. Yeah, I don't know if Pineda's going to be the starter. 
I don't know if the Pineda is going to be the starter when Tobias Salquist is fully up to speed because Salquist had an injury issue before he came. And while he's healthy now, his fitness is still not 100%, and he's still getting acclimated to the team. Same reason Acosta didn't start. So stay but tuned. But it's possible that he could be... He could be at the like again, like one of the first options is a backup at center back, and the first option is a backup at the center, like at the double pivot, like further up yeah. in the midfield. But just keep an eye out for Salquist because he's not injured. He's he was a, officially a healthy scratch, but he's working his way up to a hundred percent match sharpness and getting used to his teammates. So get so ready not for injured, him. but not not healthy. Not injured, but not a hundred percent fit. So fair enough. He, he should be he should be ready soon. Next couple of games, get ready for him because I think he's going to be a really really good center back for this team. All right, sounds great. So, um, anything else before we put a ball on Philadelphia? Oh, we forgot to mention the two other players that also had great games: Marin and Aragoni. So, Aragoni in his debut with the Chicago Fire had, a, I think, a very strong game um, playing. Marin Haile Selassie made it his mission to bully Kai Wagner. Bully. Within seconds of the game starting, he was already nutmegging Wagner. It was, it was pretty hilarious. And he had a fantastic game. Uh, did not end up in the box score, but I think... He looked goal dangerous. He was quick. His his speed was on display. His um, ability, like he had some very good, I think, like one touch passing to some other players. Um, and Aragoni, I thought his debut in MLS was very solid. Uh, he feels like an upgrade at the right back position. Um, I don't know how you guys feel about that. I, th- I think I he's overall. Overall, he's definitely better than uh, Suke was. So, any other beats um, before we move on to uh, the future and talk about FC Cincinnati? Uh, I got to defend Klopas on this. I see a lot of people saying, why did he bring Barlow on? Uh, He brought Barlow and Navarro on when we were leading. You bring Barlow on when you're leading in hopes that he doesn't have to do anything. And unfortunately, he was unable to round the goalkeeper. Like He had an opportunity. He was very close. He was very close in the... in the dying minutes of the match to be able to round the goaltender and potentially get a goal. Uh, his first, obviously in a fire Jersey in his day. Semley's feet were frozen. Semley was going nowhere. He was one, one of the goalkeeper, the goalkeeper froze instead of trying to dribble around the goalkeeper, which he had so much time and space to easily do and easily score. He instead tried to shoot straight at assembly and it was saved. So, um, debut for several fire players, uh, now three Swiss players on the Chicago fire, uh, including Aragoni who had his debut, um, two, two draw one point in one of the hardest buildings to play in, in this league. Uh, unfortunate that the fire conceded two of those points in stoppage time, but getting a point, in Philadelphia, as you said before, Alex was like honestly a result that Fire fans I don't think would have been unhappy with if they just were offered that as a straight up deal before the game started. 
Yeah, but I mean, if the fire came away from Subaru Park with three points instead of one, I mean, the drive back wouldn't have just been positive. It would have been over the full moon. So that's, and that is, I think, one of the issues that I think some fire fans, if they're like, this is like the last thing I we're going to talk about this before we move on. But one of the issues is th- the team looked improved from last season. I think that we all would agree with that. Um, but if the team is improved and ultimately the result is the same and they concede two leads in the course of a match and end up with a draw when like they snatched a draw from the, uh, from the jaws of victory. And if, if that's what's happening, which is what happened over the past couple of seasons, do the improvements really matter if ultimately we're still landing in the same place? And I think that's a question that the fire fans are asking themselves and will be asking themselves if this continues to happen. Um, despite I mean, the fact, again, like this, this is a hard place to play in, right? Like, and, and we can acknowledge that, but I at the same Philly time, might saying, be the hardest place to play in the league, but at the same time, it is, it is. Well, given the number of points that Philadelphia has gotten at home over the past season, certainly it is, but still how many teams have been leading in, you know, going into stoppage time. Um, and ended up breaking, like conceding that lead. Like that's, that I think is the question that like fire fans, like if you want to be glass half empty, that's the question fire fans are going to be asking themselves. And I, I think that's legitimate. Um, I think that does detract away from the, the performance that a lot of players had and the team had as a whole. Um, it does look like a different team from what we saw before. And to be honest, I can't remember a season debut where the team looked this sharp in, any time in recent memory. I don't know if either of you feel otherwise. No, I mean, I think the game against New England in 2021, they came out all guns blazing, and that was the New England team that went on to win the Supporters' Shield, and they tied 2-2. That's the only one that comes close for me in the last couple of years. Oh, the game against Seattle in 2020 was a good start as well, but they collapsed at the end there too. Yeah. And, and so I think that that's, that's my point about like fire fans, like, this, that's where the sort of like I've been down this road before where the, the fire did play against Seattle who were, you know, considered the class of the league and still are one of the class, like one of the top teams in the league. And I think most people's estimation seeing a draw from what looked like it could have been a win. I think it's sort of like we've been down this road before. So with Philadelphia in the books, the fire are about to have their home opener. Um, against FC Cincinnati, which, you know, obviously the reigning supporter shield winners did not go as far in the playoffs as they would have wanted. Uh, currently in CONCACAF Champions Cup play. They recently had a nil-nil draw against Toronto um, on Saturday. How do we feel about how do we feel about this match going into it, guys? I would feel very good if I was the Chicago Fire about this match. And FC Cincinnati are the reigning Shield winners, but there's so much reason for optimism if you're if you're if you're the Fire in this game. Look, in opening weekend of MLS, teams that were coming off a midweek Concacaf Champions Cup game went zero wins, five draws, one loss. No, none of the teams coming off Concacaf Champions League won their game after Cincinnati are going to be coming off a game on Wednesday against Cavalier SC. From Jamaica, not to be confused with the same... They're Jamaican, not to be confused with the Cavalier FC. I was trying to make sure it wasn't going to be Calavier or something, but no, it's Jamaican. 
It's Jamaican. Um, they're Jamaican. They shouldn't be confused that there's a Cavalier FC in in the Bahamas and there's a similar sounding team in the Canadian Premier League. So lots yeah. of people want to be Cavalier. Either way, either way, they're going to be coming off that game on Wednesday. So they're only going to have two days of rest. Now um, they are leading 2-0 in the from the first side of that tie. Yes, but still they're going to have to put out a strong team to not be complacent because this is a competition I know they want to do well and this is their first ever tie in this in this game. And also in their first game against Toronto, I watched it back. They didn't look very good. They didn't look very productive. They didn't look very creative and Toronto are expected to be one of the worst teams in MLS this season. Now, um, Toronto, of course, do have, like, this is essentially not the official debut of John Herbin, the former Canadian national men's team coach um, at Toronto FC, who was technically hired months and months um, before the end of the 2023 MLS season. But this was functionally his debut as a head coach. Yeah. For that. Team. And we'll see how things go for Toronto. I mean, maybe Toronto's better than we expected, but Cincinnati go. Playing at home against Toronto and completely struggling, I think they they could only muster like 0.4 expected goals the entire match. So, so we'll do you want to talk about the tactics for that match? Or are we going to talk about what uh, some of the changes that FC Cincinnati has from that supporter shield winning side? Well, first of all, FC Cincinnati in the first game without Matt Miazga, he's going to be back for this game. And but, again, this is the second time in a row where the Fire expected to have one of the top defenders in the league suspended for the match against the Fire. And it turns out the powers that be at the league headquarters have decided that they will be playing against the Fire after all. Yeah, it's kind of interesting, isn't it? Um, but Alvaro Barreal, who was best 11 player for Cincinnati last season, out. Um, he's gone. And then Yerson Mosquera, who is also best 11 and was, I believe, runner-up for Defender of the Year to Miazga. He's gone. He's back at Wolverhampton Wanderers. So that's two of their best players out of the team. Brandon Vasquez is at uh, Monterrey. Monterrey, where he yeah, is in- scoring goals for fun. And he just had a child. Congratulations, Brandon, actually. Um, but, yeah. Cincinnati, different one team. Of the, from one of the challenges that a lot of USMNT fans have is they would like to go let's go Brandon on occasional basis, but that's been taken from them. Um, but in this case, like th- that applies. Let's go Vasquez. Anyway, um, I think they're still going to be a good team this year. It's going to be a tough game for the fire, but I think at home, you have to go out and win this game. So do we want to talk about some of the players that are into FC Cincinnati? So, uh, Brandon Vasquez, who was their leading striker last year, um, towards the end of the season is out. Um, the replacement they've brought in so far is Corey Baird, um, who I think it's fair to say is, um, more than a cut or two below what Brandon Vasquez was capable of accomplishing. I mean, they still, ha- they still have Bupenza though, the Gabonese designated player. He didn't start against Toronto, but he'll be available. Um, and then on top of that, bringing in Miles um, Robinson, one of the best backs in the league over the past couple of seasons, um, signed as a free agent. So one of the biggest free agent signings in the offseason. Um, and then Pavel Bucha from the Czech Republic uh, 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 in the midfield has also joined the team. And um, winger Luca Oriano is coming in from the Brazilian uh, top division. And that's the replacement for Barreal. So it, it's sort of funny that uh, 
FC Cincinnati has changed like the number of players they have. I think that it's fair to say that over the past like calendar year or so, they have dealt with some of those changes a lot more gracefully than some of the others. Um, and obviously still have a lot of talent in that roster uh, top to bottom, but obviously at the same time, you know, playing midweek CONCACAF, you know, Champions Cup matches uh, and the draw against Toronto. Now, do we want to talk about Alex D, DJ? Actually, you have, I, I haven't asked for uh, anything from you in a while. Did you get a chance to watch that match? I did not. The Toronto uh, FC Cincinnati match. Yeah, I watched it back. I mean, like I said, I didn't think Cincinnati looked like the same team they were last season, but I think part of that is because they have a lot of new players. They have to gel together. Bupenza didn't start. Bupenza, for me, is going to be their best player this year other than Miles Robinson. Um, So we'll see if he starts on Saturday. We'll see if he starts in CONCACAF on Wednesday. Uh, but he's the player to watch for me. So something I noticed is basically um, John Herpin's side mobbed Lucho Acosta, like who is one of the more talented number 10s in the league. I mean, obviously we're going to exempt um, the uh, a, a certain player in Miami, but one of the more talented midfielders in the league, like offensive midfielders in the league. Um. Also, one of the shorter ones, if we're being honest. I mean, even including the, even including Lionel Messi in Miami, um, and number ten from Chicago from the from the Alps. Yes, and Jordan Shakiri. Although, to be honest, Shakiri towers over Lucho Acosta. So, I mean, that gives you an idea of scale. Um, he's about four inches taller officially. Um, who knows just, if teams use the same fudge factors? Really? Yeah, he's five. Shaq is like. I five Acosta is five three. All right. Um, but one of the things that Toronto FC did was they more or less mobbed um, Lucho Acosta. They did not give him the time or space to really be a creator, and that seemed to be pretty effective at shutting down a lot of their attack. Now, obviously, as you mentioned, Alex Bupenza, one of the more talented goal scorers in this league, was not was not in that match. So. He came off the bench, but there's only so much you can do in 30 minutes. I yeah. think for me, you talked about the game plan to keep to eliminate Luke Cho Acosta because he still has the quality. He still looks like the most quality player in the field for them from the start. I think, I don't know if Kellen Acosta is ready to start yet. Frank said he might be. I don't know if Kellen's ready to start yet, but if you could have a Kellen Gaston double pivot, I think that would be good. If Gaston. I just if Kellen is not able to start, I would actually drop either Gaston or Herbert, even though they were both great against Philly, and I would start Federico Navarro. Because I think Federico, you need to have either Navarro or Acosta, one of those two, starting in the lineup for this game. I think it'll go a long way to help eliminate um, Lucho Acosta from the game. Because if you eliminate Lucho, they're probably not going to score. Fede Navarro can be an absolute pit bull to frustrate opposing attacking midfielders. Um, and that I think would be a key, a key matchup. Um, and you're right. Like Frank Klopas is always very conservative. I think with integrating new players into the lineup um, that obviously includes Tobio Salquist, which we talked about the, you know, getting fully match fit. 
we talked about um, the the fact that like Acosta, Kellen Acosta came off to the off the bench for the fire as opposed to starting, which I think a lot of us expected him to start. Um, but I mean, another week, another another week together, like it's it's entirely possible that it could be a different place. And also, I don't know how you feel about this. I feel more comfortable. I was expecting that the the fire's double pivot would start off with with Kellen Acosta and um, Gaston Jimenez more or less being the the guys. Like, it was going to be their jobs to lose. And I had some concerns about that because I, Kellen is more than capable of getting back and playing defensively, um, but he prefers to be the further advanced. So my concern was if if Kellen thought that his job and if his task was to be the further advanced of the two and Gaston does not cover that much ground defensively, who was actually going to be coming back and helping the back line. I think that after this past match, where I think we did see Gaston Jimenez doing that a fair amount, I think my concerns are allayed so much. I don't know how you feel about that, Alex. I always thought that those two were going to be the the locked-in pairing, though it depends on the game plan here and there, but I think those two, for me, are easily the two best midfielders that this team has. I mean, look, Kellen... Kellen has said before his favorite position is the 10. And he actually played the 10 for about 10 minutes against Philly at the end of the game. But realistically, his best position, it may not be his favorite, but we've seen this the last three years with the U.S. men's national team. His best position is the 6. And I think with him and Gaston Jimenez, when they're starting together, you're going to see a lot of trading off. I think you're going to see some moments, which is what you Gaston want from the double pivot, right? Like that's that's right. the ideal for a double pivot in a, like a, a sort of like template four two three one formation. What's gr- what's great about Gaston and Kellen is that they're both players who can play as an attacking minded midfielder or a defensive minded midfielder. Whereas Federico Navarro can really only do one of those things. Fabian Herbers can really only do one of those things too. In the past, Dumbia again could really only be one of those guys. Well, so to be like, honest, I, I, I'm, I'm going to quibble a little bit because we saw Fetty with some offensive prowess. I think one of the issues was that the communication that he and Gaston had didn't really allow Fetty to go forward or when he would commit forward, Fetty would overcommit and would not be able to get back on defense. I mean, I just think what we're going to see a lot more of is Acosta and Gaston interchanging. Because Acosta has Acosta is the best passer, not named Gutierrez or Shakiri. So, I think you're going to see a lot of him going up, interchanging. I think you're going to see a lot of Gaston going up, and Acosta, a very smart player, when he he's going to know when to stay back, when to go up. That's the really good thing about him. He's experienced. Gaston is experienced. They both understand each other fairly well. They're going to combine very well, and. I think on a game-to-game basis, you're going to see those two together a lot of the time once Akash is 100% fit. And Federico Navarro, a very good third option to have. And Federico Navarro, by the way, in the last year of his deal when he is U22 uh, spot eligible, so this could be an important year for him just in terms of his future. Um, So before we wrap it up, uh, apologies if we are not able to get this from DJ. He's been having internet issues. He lives in a land of swamps and alligators, and so there's really only so much that technology can do to help them out there. Um, I'm going to ask for match predictions. Um, fire home opener against Cincinnati. One of the top teams in the league 
um, over the past year and a half or so. What's your prediction, Alex? Like I said, I think the Fire have to go out and win this game. I think with the red shirts, everyone's going to be excited. The home fans are going to be there. I think the weather's going to be nice from what I've been hearing. My prediction, Fire win this game. 3-1, two goals for Hugo Kuypers. And why not? One for Brian Gutierrez. Keep things rolling for him. I think we're going to see a very good performance from the Chicago Fire, and I, I'm very optimistic. Would love to see it. So, um, DJ, by the way, is now no longer able to speak to us. He's a he's a ghost, but he is still typing from afar, much as Alan has done previously in the podcast, although it's probably more swamp alligator related in DJ's case. Um, DJ's prediction for the match is three to one, a fire went over Cincinnati with goals from Guti, Marin and Acosta. Um, by the way, the uh, fire DJ mentions, of course, and he would know this are, are four, one and four since moving to soldier field when the attendance is over 20,000 people. Uh, Dave Baldwin said in an article in cranes that came out on um, Monday, February 26th, that the anticipated crowd for the fire for their season opener is over 25,000 people. So that bodes well for the team. Um, for myself, I think that realistically it's probably going to be a little bit tighter than um, either DJ or Alex do. I think that a 2-1 win is probably the way it's going to end up. Um, I'm going to say Kuypers gets his first goal, and I'm going to say... Tom Barlow gets a goal off the bench because that would just be amazing. He was he was chipping a goalie away from getting his his opening goal in a fire uniform. No reason not to do it um, at home in front of a crowd that will probably be in favor of him scoring every goal that he can. So, Alex, anything else about the Cincinnati game before we close this out? No, I mean, I think if you're a fire fan in Chicago who's able to go to the game, you're going to want to be there 100%. I'm going to be watching it from this room in Syracuse, New York that I'm currently recording from. But if you are in Chicago, enjoy it because it's going to be a party over there. It should be a great time. Um, and if you're on the fence about it again, like anticipated crowd of about 25,000 people, which is the nominal number of seats the fire normally sells. So that is, a, it's, it's going to be a good crowd. Um, the weather looks good. Uh, first time the fire have played in red at soldier field since they're friendly against Manchester United over a decade ago. So it's it's going to be a party. Uh, come out. It should be fun. Um, DJ is asking if anyone would like to pay for his ticket and fly him over quickly. Well, DJ, how about this? Uh, I'll, I've got your ticket, and I'll cover half the airfare if somebody covers the other half. So with that, uh, this has been the first episode of The Bonfire. Uh, we hope that you enjoyed it. We hope that you enjoyed spending some time with us. Um, Min in Red 97 has a new podcast account for all of our audio platforms. Please follow us at MIR97Pods on X, formerly known, or like the platform formerly known as Twitter. Um, Alan wishes he could be here. He will be here soon. And we really appreciate you for listening as always. Come on, you men in red. Red.